During the worst part of the pandemic, when it wasn't possible to meet in person, one of the things I missed the most was just getting together with a friend for coffee and talking. When I discovered the podcast Wild Precious Life from Anne-Marie Kelly, I realized how lonely I had been. Anne-Marie interviews such interesting people, musicians, writers, entrepreneurs, and people just taking their own path in this world. She opens up the conversation to where I feel like I'm sitting there at the table with them, with my steaming cup of tea in front of me, just nodding along. I believe that conversation is an art and is the most effective mode of communication that we have. If you want to hear someone who practices this art beautifully in a way that is inclusive and curious and courageous, join me in joining Anne-Marie Kelly for her podcast, Wild Precious Life. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Stick around to the end of the episode to hear more about Wild Precious Life. The episode you're about to hear is part of our Season 2 series on family. Whether family of origin or family of choice, is your work a family affair? Welcome to another episode of Art Heals All Wounds. I'm your host, Pam Uzel. On this show, we meet artists transforming lives with their work. Most evenings, you can find me under a blanket with a bowl of popcorn watching Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, Apple TV, Disney Plus, and well, you get the idea. I don't know about you, but I watch a ton of series and movies and they're all through streaming services. I can't even remember the last time I watched something on network television. Although I used to work in the feature film industry, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't thought very much about where all of this streaming content is coming from. I for sure haven't thought enough about the craftspeople making it. This week, I talk with cinematographer and camera operator Rachel Dusa. She shares with me some of the realities of working on set, especially on set for content that is headed to streaming services. When streaming was new, it perhaps made sense to create a different tier of prices and set of rules for that content. But anyone who regularly consumes media knows that streaming has far outpaced network television. And during the pandemic, it certainly outpaced theatrical releases. Streaming services are no longer fledgling companies. In the past three years, Netflix alone has been nominated for 86 Academy Awards. I don't want to imply that any one particular production on Netflix or any other streaming service is exploiting workers because different productions have different standards. This episode and interview with Rachel is more about getting a clearer picture of the reality of work on a film set. It's also an opportunity for all of us who consume this entertainment content to think about whether we're okay with some of the working conditions on the sets of some of our favorite movies and shows.
You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds. Listen and let us inspire you. In the early days of the film industry, women played a critical role both in front of and behind the camera. With the advent of talkies when sound was added to movies, film became viewed as more technical and as more of a business, and as an industry, it became more male-dominated, with women being pushed out. It's been challenging for women to participate in this industry ever since. Some people, though, don't back down from a challenge. Rachel Dusa is one of those people. I met Rachel when she was a student in film school. Even then, most of the students focusing on cinematography were men. But Rachel knew her film history and knew that women had played a significant role in production before. So why not again? Besides, Rachel had great female role models in her family, and she learned the value of determination early on. I'm so glad that Rachel is joining me on this episode to talk more about finding her way in a male-dominated role, and also to share some of the working conditions that face filmmaking production crews. Before we meet today's guest, I want to tell you about an app called Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. There really hasn't been an app like Newsly before now. Newsly picks up all of the trending articles on the web and reads them to you in a natural human voice. You can find any topic you're interested in, sports, politics, or art. Just select the article you want to hear and Newsly will read it to you. I've loved using this app. I listen to it when I'm commuting or when I'm gardening or while I'm cooking, anytime when my hands are occupied, but I want to listen to the news. You can also find trending podcasts from over 50 countries on Newsly, including Art Heals All Wounds. Newsly has become my go-to listening app for podcasts. If you want to try Newsly for yourself, just download it from www.newsly.me. And if you use the promo code ARTHEALS, you'll get a free one-month premium subscription. I'll include all of this info in the show notes so that you can just click on the link and use the Art Heals promo to get your free trial. Now, let's meet this week's guest. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Art Heals All Wounds. Can you introduce yourself by telling us who you are and what you do? Yeah. Hi, Pam. First of all, thank you so much for uh, having me on today. Excited to have this conversation. My name is Rachel Dusa, and I work as a cinematographer, camera operator, and also a first assistant camera in Los Angeles, California. Well, I'm curious, when did you first know that you wanted to become a director of photography or camera operator? No is a funny word. I still feel like sometimes <laughs> I flip-flop in my brain as to like if I want to put myself through this kind of uh, torture that set life can be at times. Right. But I feel like I really launched into it and committed to it about when I was... I feel like I decided around the time I was 21. Mm. Well, I remember we met because you were in an editing class. And mm -hmm. you didn't say this to me. You were talking to a classmate and you were, the group of you were discussing what you wanted to do in the film industry. And I remember you saying, I am going to do camera. And I remember thinking at that time, like, wow, that is bold because has traditionally historically been 
pretty much a male dominated profession. And I'm just curious, did you know that when you made the decision that you wanted to do camera, what was your understanding of how easy, difficult that would be? I was aware that I was very much aware that it was um, a male dominated industry, but that typically has not really stopped me in my lifetime. I uh, (laughs) have tended to be a very stubborn person. And when I find something that intrigues me, especially on an intellectual level, I feel like I dive after it. And filmmaking, while it can be this very physical process, there is very much an intellectual side to it. And I think great filmmaking is the marrying of the two, really. Mm. But I think partially what helped me was honestly kind of jumping into it later. I actually started in an animation background and in a fine arts background and had gotten halfway through that degree when I switched to cinematography. Ah. Yeah, so I learned about the filmmaking process as it pertains to actual live action film, not until, you know, my late teens, early 20s. And part of what helped was really understanding the birth of cinema and actually how much women were very much involved in that. Oh, wow. And learning the history of how women were, you know, removed from a lot of these roles that they were in. I mean, if you look at the dawn and heyday of cinema, we had some really iconic and incredible directors and camera women that were women. Mm. In the editing room as well, many crafts were dominated and women were doing well. And unfortunately, they were shoved out over time. And I don't know, I've never seen a reason as to why we couldn't return to that, especially in, you know, you think, wow, it's 2021. How is this even a discussion still? Right, right. Well, I'm so glad you felt that way. And I do remember thinking when I heard you say it, there was just such that thing you're talking about, the stubbornness, I would have said it was more confidence the way that I heard you say it. I'm glad it came off that way. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't say like, oh, I'm going to try to do camera or maybe I kind of like camera. Maybe I'm going to try that. You said, I am going to do cinematography. So there was such a confidence there. And I've been really happy to see over time that that is exactly what you have done. So where do you think you got this confidence besides knowing your the history of filmmaking and how important and um, successful women were in the beginning? Where do you think you as a person got that confidence, what I would say, and stubbornness, what you would say? I think I definitely developed that in my upbringing. Stubbornness seems to be a trait that follows in my family. (laughs) But uh, really what kicked it off, I would say, is being, I was, unfortunately, my father passed at a very young age. And Mm. at the time that he passed, I actually had a cousin living with me from India that had come to the United States to study. And when my father passed away, my mother was very suddenly widowed with four Mm -hmm. very young children. Wow. I was only five at the time, and I'm the second oldest, to give you an idea. So a very daunting situation to be in, and my father passed very suddenly. It wasn't expected or anything like that. So, yeah, really just growing up and sort of not only having to become sort of a pseudo parent to aid my mother and my cousin, but watching these two women kind of work their way through life, one of them being, you know, an immigrant to this country and watching her navigate 
just the cross cultures and learning about my own culture and that side in that regard. But watching the way that both of them just kind of navigated the world and went through life. And my mom would always drag us on these huge travel trips as, you know, a single woman with like four young children. And growing up, I like very much admire that because that's a ton of work, but it's also, (laughs) it's scary. Like it's scary being, you know, the one at the helm. Right. Have you ever gone back and talked to your mother about that time for her? Or does it just seem so natural that it wouldn't even be a conversation to have? We've spoken about it. I think she definitely jokes about it. I think a lot of it was her being in fight or flight mode simply and just the the sheer will to survive. And Mm. I absolutely think that's also part of why the hardship of it all and the dauntingness of it all doesn't really bother me because I've, I've grown up and been forged through hardship and I know hardship and I know that if I could survive those things, like why can't I survive this or why can't I try? Right. Well, I'm so curious, what has your experience been in terms of getting your foot in the door and finding work? How, how has that worked for you? Um, you left, you're in LA now. Mm-hmm. You, you are from Santa Cruz originally. Is that true? Yes. I grew up in the Santa Cruz area, of, uh, which is uh, central California for mm-hmm. those unaware. And so you left to go to LA when you wanted to start working. And how does one go about getting their first job in production in LA? It's it's terrifying and it's daunting. It wasn't completely new to me. I had actually started entering the industry when while I was in college up in San Francisco. So I actually started my career in the Bay Area. But, you know, one of my very first jobs was PAing on a music video and I remember having to wrap up cable and, you know, take out the trash and bring people coffee and all the, you know, the very glamorous lovely duties of being a PA. Right. Yeah, but no, I very much started from the bottom. I think I applied for that job on Craigslist, and I just kind of started grunting it out from the beginning. And it was actually through another college friend got me an opportunity through um, IGN at the time, actually. What's IGN? IGN is a video game company. Mm -hmm. They are mostly known for doing reviews online. But at the time, they had actually kind of launched the birth of what is now esports, oddly enough. Mm, wow. Yeah. So I had been hired to camera operate on a couple tournaments, you know, way but this is of course, you know, we're talking about like eleven, twelve years ago. This is when no one had any clue what esports even was. So this was like very much the birth and heyday of it. But I got to go and operate at a couple of these tournaments and they were, you know, streaming live and everything. So you had that pressure, you know, of having your work being live and not having to mess up. And I was super nervous because it was one of my first real camera operating jobs. And, you know, I had done little projects with friends and everything, of course, and stuff like that. But this was like one of my first forays really into the professional world. And yeah, from there, they really liked my work and kept hiring me. And then from there, I had kind of the credits to be able to apply for their jobs. And is this mostly now that you get work through networking people that know your work already, or is it still a question of having to reach out and sort of make those cold call type situations? 
I have been in a really lucky position and, you know, not everyone gets to be in this position, definitely. But I've been in a very lucky position where I've been able to rely on my network really for the last, I mean, I haven't really had to cold call in probably a good six or seven years now. Mm. And it's all been pretty steadily off of my network. But, you know, building that network and getting it to where it was today was, you know, years and years and years of work. Right. And I know a little bit about this from post-production, but can you talk about the network a little bit? Sorry, I know I'm throwing some questions at you that we didn't talk about that, but I think that people who don't work freelance in this way, this idea of your network and really what it takes to build a healthy and strong network. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's an interesting process. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of falling on your face along the way. Um, You learn how to really build and form your business practices as you're forming your network. And what I mean by that is, you know, as as you network, you're going to come across people that don't necessarily work along the same professional guidelines that you might, or, you know, maybe they're more willing to put you in a riskier situation than you're willing to. As a woman, you know, you absolutely experience discrimination. I definitely have throughout my career. So you really have to be ready to be your own advocate and uh, kind of protect yourself in those ways, but also protect yourself um, in classical business senses, you know, like, do these people seem organized? Are they actually going to pay me on time? Just like as a general Mm -hmm. freelance contractor, like, am I actually going to be able to carry out this business? Because at the end of the day, you know, when you're applying to these ads or uh, job calls, it's, you know, there are random phone numbers calling you. You have no idea who's calling you and navigating that as a, as a woman in particular can be uh, tricky and interesting. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you're obviously referring to here is our safety issues that mm-hmm. maybe if you were not a woman, you might never think twice about. Right. For example, early on my career when I just moved to Los Angeles, I took a job where we drove out about, you know, three hours north of Los Angeles out into the high desert um, mm. to this location called the Trona Pinnacles. And we were working out there, camping out there the entire time. But it was my first time meeting all of these people. We would be camping over the whole weekend out like very much remotely in this desert. Mm-hmm. And I was really the only woman there. So I had to really weigh you know, my safety at the time, I was in my early 20s. It was just like, am I, you know, willing to do this and go out into the desert and camp with a bunch of strangers for a whole weekend? Right. But, you know, I found ways to like check my bases, the contracts looked legit and everything. And we had conversations and ended up turning into like an insane film for many other reasons. But, you know, I felt safe, like going into it. Ah, that's really good. But it sounds like it sounds like again that you did your due diligence. It's not something that you would just, yeah, sure, I'm there and jump in the yeah. van and go to the high desert yeah. without checking all the backgrounds. We bring up this idea of being safe, and I know that I've seen from you and other friends who work in the film industry a lot about working to make the production work more humane and safe. Mm-hmm. What is happening on set right now that makes it unsafe? 
I think that there's a large, and I, I mean, I hope there is, honestly. I think there's a large culture shift going on. I feel like I sense it in the crews working around me. Mm. You know, I can't make a blanket statement for the entire industry, but largely in a lot of the crews that I see around me, there's absolutely a shift in the feeling. And I think part of that came from the pandemic. I think a lot of it came from these streaming companies coming up, the insane increase in demand for content, Mm -hmm. and really just the lack of supply of workers and being spread thin and overworked. I mean, the, the conditions that a lot of us have been working in under the guise of you know, streaming as a new media concept is honestly shocking. I'd argue that my career was, you know, really built on that exploitation. Could you explain that a little bit better? Like what was the exploitation built into this idea of streaming content? So to give you some backstory, way back when streaming was coming up, and I'm talking about like when YouTube was just coming up and these avenues are being, you know, discovered as uh, ways that people were ingesting a lot of content and a lot in <laughs> large amounts of uh, quantity and time. When all these streaming companies were coming up, the unions basically struck a deal with all of these companies and they said like, oh, we know this is a new experimental form, so we're going to give you essentially a discount. So under a lot of these contracts that a lot of these shows are able to operate under, they're able to pay people, you know, in a lot of crafts, sometimes you're receiving up to like 50% less 40%, 30% less in your wages just because mm. it's you know being shown on YouTube or a streaming network rather than being played on NBC. Mm-hmm. But my job doesn't change whether we're filming something for NBC or something for Netflix. It's, it's very much the same process. Right? We're using literally the same tools sometimes. It's the same job. So to have it still be treated as some new foreign thing is just silly to me. And you ask anybody, like, how are they ingesting their content now? They're most likely streaming it. Right. And we're talking about, I mean, Netflix now is a huge player, but then also Disney. There's so many streaming platforms that are not small fledgling entities at all. No, not at all. I mean, we're talking about mega conglomerates, you know, that are kind of owned by each other in some senses. And the other shocking thing is they're able to, you know, funnel their contracts through smaller production companies, which are able to get labor for less. And then they just sell the content to these distributors who are just streaming it. Um, mm. But there's there are so many loopholes into which below-the-line crew are really being exploited. And the growth of streaming has definitely been on the backs of those crew. Right. So just to explain what below the line is anyone who's involved in the production aspect, like not the writer, not the producer, things like that, but someone who is actually there making Correct. the film, doing the actual work. Yes. The crafts people is another term yeah. for it. So the people that yeah. are actually performing these crafts and performing the work that literally makes the product. Right. Right. The one thing that I've heard in Posts, yours included, is that it's about payment, but it's also about the expectations and working conditions when you're doing production. What were some of those concerns? A lot of the concerns are are really around work days and overtime have seemed to increase 
especially in the last five years, I feel like almost every job I do just has excessive overtime almost every day. Mm. But not only that, um, not breaking for lunch or your your meal is quite common. That just happened on my show a couple of weeks ago. We had a day where production sent out an email a couple of days ahead and they said, you know, and on Monday, we're not going to break for lunch. So just be ready. Wow. And we're not talking eight hour days when you work in the film industry. That was a 12.7 hour day that day. Yeah. Which is not even the longest day that can happen working in film. No. Yeah. But they also, you know, there's also kind of a lot of side ploys and lures. There's the concept of French hours, for example, where, which was very much supposed to be in play that day. This is a great example of, you know, French hours trying to be put into place. But the concept is we're going to have a shorter day because we have to get through this work and because we have so much and we're not going to break because of it, because of light. In this case, we weren't breaking because of daylight. It was very much mm-hmm. a daylight issue. But, you know, they say we're not going to break for X, Y, Z reasons. And so we're just budgeting this and step away when you can to eat and, you know, good luck. <laughs> and that's what it ends up being. But that day with French hours, the sort of like expectation is that you're only going to be working about 10 hours at most. With the exchange that you're not breaking for lunch, you're going to get through this like, you know, mass amount of work that they have to get, but you're, you're going to get through it in 10 hours. But in our case, it very much ended up being even more than a normal day still. So then, you know, you're not eating for 13 hours, probably more than that once you tack on the commute each way. Like once you tack on the commute to that, I haven't eaten in, you know, 15 hours probably at home. Which is crazy. I mean, for me, even the thought of not eating in 10 hours and that 10 hours is a short day, that's excessive. But it's also not like you're doing work that isn't physically demanding. I mean, you should still eat even if you're writing in a notebook. But the work on set is really physically demanding. Yeah, and that's part of uh, the debate and part of the issue and really part of the discussion overall between the unions and why some of them back French hours and why some of them don't is that some crafts are, they do have downtime, right? Like when, for example, if, you know, you're in art department, you might be working on something between takes, but once you start rolling, you're going to stop because you don't want to cause any sound if you're near the set and you're actively working on like, maybe you're addressing the next set that we're moving on to. But some crafts do have that downtime and they are able to step away. I will give them that. But not every craft is granted that. Mm -hmm. Um, The first AC, I would argue, is probably one of the roles that's in the most demand alongside with the director and the director of photography and the camera operators. Mm -hmm. All of those people, you know, in the first AD as well, there's there's a handful of roles really that just can cannot step away. Right. And when you add in the logistics of COVID on top of that and the safety measures on top of that, it makes it even more restrictive. So, you know, when I go into my day and as soon as I, you know, get to the truck, I'm pulling out the camera, we're unloading the cart, we're getting it to whatever location we are and building it. I'm getting it set up for the first shot. Then I have to go do the marking rehearsal, go look at that. You know, likely we'll have a safety meeting prior to that that I'm attending. And as a first, I need to be there. But, you know, and then we move on to setting up the setup, 
then during the take, I'm pulling focus. After mm. the take, I'm going to monitor the camera or check in with my operator or check in with the notes. Or maybe I'm getting a note from the DP or the director on HME. Or maybe I'm having to memorize the size because I have to line hop during the take. What does line hop mean? So line hop is typically when you have like two people in the frame and you see the focus racking between them, but you have mm. to rack on dialogue. Mm-hmm. But it's increasingly difficult, especially, for example, we were doing comedy. Comedy is so much about the timing. Mm-hmm. The comedy is also very much about just sort of the organic nature of improv sometimes, right? The right. Di- and directors want that energy as they should out of their talent. But what's difficult as a focus puller, you know, is if you have two actors improving and they're both in frame and you're trying to follow the dialogue, you almost have to be psychic or have an intuitive nature or have a sense of their timing as performers, which, you know, in a TV show, that's what helps as you work weeks with them as you build that sort of muscle memory for their timing, you know, with their performance. And you kind of get a gist of like, they're probably going to toss it in here. Right. But right. yeah, it's the, the art of line hopping. It's, an, it's That's definitely incredible. an art. Wow. Well, so I'm curious, there was talk about a potential strike. The union is IATSE, which when I worked as a sound editor was also my union. And what became of that talk of the strike? So the the strike is off the table now uh, because the contract was ratified. It was ratified really sort of an electoral college majority sort of situation. Oh. Yeah. So there's there's definitely, you know, a lot of split opinions out there right now. If you uh, talk to union members about it, um, a lot of them are not great because the popular vote was no and the electoral college was a yes oh. um, to ratify this contract, um, which I think is a very important thing to know about just kind of the pulse of the membership right now. But Yes, there there was a lot of leverage and a lot of people believed that this was the time to strike. And the reason for that is not only because of the upswell in really organized labor across the country that you're seeing, but it's very much a response, I believe, to the not only the pandemic, but once again, this streaming situation that's been brewing for over 10 years and people being exploited when we're performing the same exact job. Part of that expectation, like uh, on top of wages, used to be that those jobs did not contribute to your health care or pension. So a lot of the jobs that I was expected to kind of like cut my teeth on, you know, back in the day, those would be network shows. They would be paying into your pension and health care. They would be paying you your full benefits. But a lot of my generation has come up on these streaming jobs that they're offering way less of a wage benefit. And they weren't offering traditional benefits like pension or health, which are huge reasons why we joined the union in the first place. Right. That's fascinating because when I worked, which was long before you started working, that was the one thing that was sort of a constant is that if it was a union show, they paid into health care and a pension. And so is that strictly a streaming thing that they didn't have to do that? There are some other side contracts. It gets super complicated. Even the unions will tell you this because even they have to look it up when we're talking about specific shows because there's, you know, there's so many side contracts and side letters and exceptions that it gets insane. And it's also like, is this, is this uh, first season rules that apply to this? Or is this company allowed to operate under this side letter? For example, HBO has their own specific side letter. But if 
it's HBO Max that's actually considered streaming or new media. Crazy. It's separate from the HBO side letter. The show I just worked on was exactly that situation. Wow. So there's there's really a lot of insane loopholes that uh, these companies are able to you know jump through, and they very much do in order to make more money. Right. Well, I know that you can't solve this and tell me what your solution to this is going to be. Although maybe you can. I'm, I wish I could. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm just curious. So, you know, as you go forward, you're saying that at the very least, there's a culture shift. And I'm, I'm wondering yes. what that looks like and how you're feeling about things as you go forward. I've definitely been feeling jaded and disheartened from this last election cycle. I don't have any shame in saying that I personally voted no. I felt like this was the time to mount more leverage. They have a lack of content currently. They need the workforce. We have very valuable skills that mm. are not easily accessible um, and take years and sometimes decades of training in order to be good at. And craftspeople and the craftspeople that I work with are not easily replaceable as, as much as they want to believe that we're just a line item on paper. Mm. It's very much these people's hard work that creates the product that we all view at the end of the day. That's such an important thing to talk about is that I think, I think somewhere along the way, the talent and skills of the people get lost in this equation. And so I'm glad that you brought that up and sort of that note to end on the experience, the talent, what you bring to it is so much more than just an item on paper. So what's next for you, Rachel? And if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they look? What's next for me is really just trekking forward. I really do hope that this culture shift translates into a larger acceptance uh, that we really just deserve more um, as craftspeople and that people are willing to stick up for really what their value is. I hope we can do that in three years when the next contract comes about. I hope we take advantage of the leverage then. And I'd love to be a part in trying to like grow and maintain that on top of, of course, going through my creative endeavors. Mm. But what's next for me creatively is I'm actually shifting more and more out of assisting and more into operating and uh, being a director of photography full time. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really trying to make that full jump. And be launching my website soon. That's actually what I've been working on over the last couple uh, weeks. And I'm hoping to get that up in the new year. Um, but if people want to follow my work for now, they can follow me on Instagram. And it's uh, my handle is just my name. That's at Rachel Dusa. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-D-U-S-A. Ah, perfect. And I have one final question. You know, all this content is being made for... Us. So is there anything that the viewing public can do to help support the craftspeople? Absolutely. You know, you brought up the question as to what the solution is. And I've been saying, I've been actually saying this on set for a couple of years ago to some of the people that I work with, but I very much believe that the solution will not only be within the power of the unions and our workforce harnessing that, 
and truly, <laughs> and I mean, not just checking in, you know, just before every negotiation cycle, but actually being involved until we get everyone on that same page. We're going to need that, but we're also really going to need the public backing the craftspeople. And we're going to need the public to understand really what goes into the content that they watch. Right. It's right. so easy to be able to absorb something in just, you know, five seconds now and move on to the next thing that you really, you don't think about what has gone into actually making the thing that you just watched or consumed. Right. Well, if there's any way that this podcast or I personally can be helpful in getting this idea across to people, please let me know. Yeah, I think it's going to take a long time, but a lot of it is going to be convincing these companies that we have more value, we are worth more, that the product that we are giving to them, which is one of the largest exports in our country, it has value. Why can't we as well? Right. Well, thank you so much for being on the episode today and sharing all that with us. Yeah, of course. Hopefully it wasn't too tangential brain spready. I get off track a lot. <laughs> no, you were right on track. It was great. Oh, thank you, Pam. This has been wonderful. You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds. I'm so grateful to Rachel Dusa for joining me on this episode. If you want to learn more about Rachel, you can follow her on Instagram at, at Rachel Dusa. That's R A C H E L D U S A. And you can also tune in to news about labor issues for entertainment workers and support union workers who make the content that we consume. The music you've heard in this podcast is Yellow Light District by Lobo Loco. Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 15 in D major was performed by Karine Galanian. The two additional pieces of music used in the intro were by Remus and Ketza. This podcast was edited by Eva Hristova. I'm really glad you're here and I'm glad you're listening. The goal of this podcast is to help artists and listeners find each other. You can help me do that by following this podcast wherever you listen to them. So before you leave your listening app, just click that option to follow the show and I'll keep bringing you more inspiring stories of artists every week. What is it you want? I mean it. If you really got to choose, if you had a little magic, what would you want to do with your life? Sure, some of us would quit our jobs and see the world, climb that mountain or walk along the beach. But then what? Are there problems you would solve? I raised money for the New York Food Bank, um, and I think we raised enough for 200,000 meals. Wrongs you would make right? We will say we don't want to take care of any of these things while we're looking at the consequences of not providing those safety nets, right? COVID didn't have to be this bad. Whose forgiveness would you seek? I was reading it. I'm like, I think I might be the villain 
of this story. I'm not on the team. In fact, I'm shaking the book hard. And I'm like, oh, no. What wounds might you heal? You know, I feel like I should just throw up a little flag here to say that one of the unacknowledged conditions of the American healthcare system is the way its bureaucracy itself is a wounding. And what are you waiting for? I feel held, I feel seen, and I feel loved. Our days may be messy or complicated or broken, but they are ours. And I think we can do better, listen harder, and love more deeply. We can find our way to something more. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly, writer, teacher, learner. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in, and connecting across distance, division, and loss. We are all hungry for those connections right now. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, entrepreneurs, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Subscribe and follow Wild Precious Life on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and get the first episode in your feed as soon as it comes out. See you soon.